Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Whether it's loss due to recent hurricanes or the overwhelming, devastating loss suffered the world over during the pandemic, it's a good guess that grief has been an unwelcomed guest in your life. On this week's episode, we're taking a long look at grief its effects, and the gifts that sometimes accompany it. We begin with Marissa Nathan Gerson, a new New Orleanian whose time here has been gravely marked by the unexpected death of her father. Marissa's recent book, Forget Prayers, Bring Cake, shares an honest, unwavering look at her life during her year of grieving. New Orleanians are well acquainted with death. After all, we live surrounded by cities of the dead, as our cemeteries are often referred to, and our mourning customs are a deep, vital part of the culture. The Herman Grima House, a historic house museum located in New Orleans' French Quarter, dresses for mourning in the style of the 19th century Creoles each October. We'll take a tour to learn more about their customs before visiting with Queer Eye star Cayenne Douglas, who lovingly remembers his deceased mother through the taste of her smothered pork chops. And as many COVID sufferers can attest, much of your ability to taste relies on your sense of smell. Author Molly Birnbaum relates the story of losing her olfactory senses in a terrible accident and how she personally dealt with the after effects. We're coming together to honor and celebrate the all too human emotion of grief on this week's Louisiana Eats. I'm Marissa Nathan Gerson, a new New Orleanian and author of Forget Prayers, Bring Cake, A Single Woman's Guide to Grieving. Grief is all around us, but there are many different paths to finding peace. Author Marissa Nathan Gerson explores grief and the many ways to navigate death and loss in her new book, Forget Prayers, Bring Cake. The memoir details her experience dealing with the sudden death of her father, which was soon followed by a Mardi Gras parade accident that left her requiring knee surgery. As Marissa explained to us, the title of her book was born out of the observations she had when she was first confronting her father's illness. At what point 
did you decide that the answer in your grief and the situation you found yourself in would be cake? Well, the, the cake, <laughs> cake was not my answer in the end, but it was definitely um, a provocateur. I was, I had a friend, and all she did when she was homesick would bake. She was such a good baker, and my dad was sick, and my sister's birthday came, and I'd been asking for a cake forever. And one day, my this woman showed up at our house with two cakes, one for my sister and one for my father. And one was an olive oil cake, and one was a chocolate cake, and all I wanted was a carrot cake. And I remember that day, that was when I started to write the title of the book and the idea for the book, because I... I was so – everybody was praying for me. My father – this was like four days before he died. And I didn't know he was going to die, but things were really bad. And people kept offering prayers. And I was just so angry. I was like, I don't want – I don't want a prayer. I want a carrot cake. Like literally, I just want the cake. I don't want – I want to be the one that gets the cake. And then when my father did die, she came over with a carrot cake. And that cake was not – it wasn't just that it was sweet and delicious. It was that somebody loved me and showed it to me through food that I could then ingest into my body. Full disclosure, you and I have been friends since you first moved to New Orleans. And so consequently, I had a little bit of a back seat on some of the struggles of your first years here. Well, I think I met you right after, soon after arriving, and I only had a week here without a crisis. Um, he got sick a week after moving here. So I moved in September 2019 and slowly gathered community around me to support me through losing him and then the actual death. My first Mardi Gras after my dad died was, I think, two months later. And I just pushed through it thinking I was having fun, but I wasn't. I was I was scared and felt out of place and felt just like, I mean, I think everyone at their first Mardi Gras might feel a little like, oh, I'm dancing in the street in my like leotard for tons of strangers, but mostly I felt the sense of death. Like I was feeling it as I was dancing. It was La Boheme and I was wearing hiking boots and I didn't know the dance steps that everyone else was doing. I just went to the very front while everyone else was dancing. We had a really great moving float and I was handing out all the like goodies to the kids and everybody. This is pre-COVID. And there was a half of me that was like, I'm a, like a movie star. This is so cool. I felt like I was in heaven. And another part of me was like, get off the street. You don't want to be here. This doesn't feel safe. Your system is like not with you. Like it was like two parts of me were at war as I was dancing. And maybe I just twisted those two parts. But I heard a pop when I was dancing. And I was sort of like, guys, my leg hurts. And I just, I think I should have just sat down. But I kept going because I... It was in the middle of a parade, and it's still. I was trying to push through the feeling, and then right like two feet before the French Quarter, I, f I, I don't know what it was, but I felt something in me. I like jumped up like I was going to fly almost and then squatted and then screamed and then keeled over into the crowd. And s this poor older woman that I like leaned into, I looked her in the eye and I said, I'm not okay. They thought I had broken my patella, but I actually – bucket tore and flipped my meniscus inside out and tore my ACL. So I was down for the count. And then I had my surgery the day that the city closed for the pandemic. So I sort of went into lockdown on the sofa. Ouch. Well, there are so many things I learned in this book. It was just magical. You make sure that the griever, who is the reader, knows that they have permission to eat the foods they love to eat 
and how important that food is when you grieve because food is love. That is how you see it. And also food can transport you to some semblance of home and it can be good medicine too. Well, I was raised by a cookbook writer. And so I grew up with a real understanding that food is family, food is culture, not not in a simple way, but a really broad way that food is history, that food carries everything in it. And then the Jewish rituals around food and death are very strong. And I remember when my grandmother died um, many, many, many years ago, we do something in Judaism called an unveiling ceremony where you don't have a headstone until a year later. And so when we took when we did the unveiling where we gave my grandmother her headstone, my great aunt Raya showed up to the cemetery in New Jersey with in a Buick and she popped the trunk right after we finished the ceremony and she had laid all of these pastries across the bed of the trunk. She said, you got to eat the minute someone dies. She didn't know that it's like very much against Jewish law to eat in a cemetery. But also Shiva, the Jewish rituals of seven days of sitting, you bring food to the mourner and there's ideas that the mourner should sit lower than everyone else, the mourner should be fed, should never have to get up. And that's not exactly how my seven days after grief went, but it's what, it's what I was, I would have liked it. Um, but the idea is that, that the food isn't just going to keep you alive, but it's also literally a way of ingesting community. I just find the practice of eating with others, especially as someone who lives alone, you know, if you show up to someone's house with a cake and you say you want to eat this together, the mood will lighten. Everyone will be grateful, except for um, I do have one neighbor um, in Mid-City who said it's really rude to bring people baked goods or cake because sugar is poison, he says. Um, so don't bring cake to your sugar-free people. But He must not be a local guy. No, he's not. <laughs> he's not local, and he loves the gym. But New Orleans cake scene is really beyond something I had even comprehended before I even wrote the title and sold the rights to this book. I didn't know about like Dauberge and I didn't know about the history of King Cakes and the variety of King Cakes and there's history. I mean, there's history in cake here and it's also a part of this practice of joy and joy is medicine and when you're miserable, eating, <laughs> eating cake is awesome unless, again, unless it makes you sick, in which case don't do it. Marissa, would you explain for people who might not know what Shiva is about and, and, and how that mourning process progresses in the Jewish faith? Sure, yeah. First off, there's such a varied range of Jewish practice. You know, there's all the gradations, just like in Christianity. There's super secular reform, and then there's people who are ultra-Orthodox. Shiva means seven, and it's a seven-day ritual where seven days is the amount of days of creation. I think they're sort of mimicking that as a week where you recede from creating, you recede from action. And if you're really religious, you would do nothing. Like you wouldn't go to work. You wouldn't, I don't think you're supposed to even bathe. Like you're really supposed to just be allowed to fall apart. And then you're supposed to have your community gather. And in a real traditional home, you would sit and people would bring you food. And then in the evening and in the morning and at you would do morning, afternoon, and evening, the prayer for the dead. And the prayer for the dead is the Kaddish. And the Kaddish isn't what you'd think. It just declares, like, God is on high, God on high. Like, you just proclaim on repeat in front of 10 people minimum this this reminder of this thing above you that might never go away if you cling to it, even though death has ruptured your life. And I think the idea is to keep you in community, to keep you, you know, it's, it's an antidepressant. It's a very simple 
practice, I, I also believe that these practices are only as effective as those who choose to participate together in them. It's really hard in the modern when we don't all share faith or we don't all share practices or we don't all share a spiritual leaning. You know, like thinking about second lines versus me, I, I've been thinking a lot about, well, why is why are second lines such remarkable grieving rituals and I couldn't dance without getting my knee ripped that night? And I think part of it is practice and community adhesion. Like, I in that e- that evening I had guilt. I wasn't I was taught not to dance for a year after my dad died. I was taught to stay away from joy. So I had all this guilt and I think guilt and shame will break your leg um pretty quick. And I think one of the things that's beautiful about second lines is going deep 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 down into the sadness and then it's almost like you dive back up into joy and it's this sort of swan dive that I definitely wasn't taught how to do. <laughs> Well, goodness knows you were taught about food as medicine and love. But, um, Marissa, you keep going through the book. You keep pursuing your concepts here. And by Chapter 9, you let us know that your title really isn't what you want. Um, It's not about forget prayers, bring cake. By Chapter 9, it's actually pray. Yeah. Well, the title was tongue in cheek when I was frustrated because someone I was like being a teenager and someone was praying for me on the phone and kept telling me they were praying. And I was just looking at these cakes that were not the cake for me. And I wanted my cake. Um, But I also really believe in the power of prayer. I know that prayer works. I know that centering oneself to something bigger than themselves works. I know that the city believes in prayer. And I have a lot of friends who come from church and church that harmed them. And so they really hate the word prayer and they hate the word God and they don't like me putting them back in that paradigm. But the prayer section talks about, you know, some people like to go kayak on the bayou for their prayer and other people will go to church for their prayer and other people bake, you know, or I know a woman in this neighborhood who does murals and that's her prayer. And prayer just to me doesn't have to be about God. I think it means like a repetitive practice that brings you bigger than this moment so you realize that death can come and go and that you're still able to like this thing that you attach to is forever it could be your higher power it could be whatever you want it to be the most important part of prayer is it's free you can be rich you can be poor and it, and it like it kicks the class divides butt like you don't have to have that as a as a dividing factor so i do believe it's really important well fitting in with prayer one of the solutions that you come to offer are um, rituals, making rituals. I've been empowered to make my own meaning when I want to, and that's been a big part of my Jewish practice. And I think that almost any religious adherent is going to come up against guilt and shame when they can't do what they think they're supposed to do and feeling like a sinner and feeling like you messed up. And I know for me, having my dad die with this ritual, I was told, especially by him, I was told my whole life, I, you know, when your parent dies, you go every day for a year, for 11 months, and you say this prayer with a group of people. And when he died, I couldn't. A, because there wasn't a daily practice here. And I also couldn't meet with people. I couldn't invite my own friends over. It was COVID. So I had to innovate. And I think finding permission to innovate and finding permission to be religious or to be practicing or to make things and do it your own way is so, so empowering. And also, I do think death, like I take a lot from these Jewish practices that I don't really do. But 
one of the things is that you do something and you do it for a year and you make practices that make it so that you own your own time and you own your own cycle. And I, I find that to be so powerful. Well, Marissa, there is so much power and all the other wonderful wisdom to be found between the pages of this, your first book. So congratulations. Thank you for having me, Poppy. That was Marissa Nathan Gerson, author of Forget Prayers, Bring Cake, A Single Woman's Guide to Grieving. As we just learned, one of Marissa's personal solutions to grief was cake. Well, there's another dessert that traditionally has been an appropriate carry-along for mourners. This was so prevalent in early times that it's called funeral pie. The largely Midwestern tradition is said to originate with the German Amish or Swiss Mennonites. Simply translated, funeral pie is a raisin pie, perfect for the occasion in so many ways. First, the black color of the dried raisins add a somber air to the pie's appearance. Raisins are a very stable pantry item, so they were sure to be on hand whenever death came calling. The finished pie is very stable itself, so it could be transported by horse and buggy and still withstand long hours on a funeral buffet. Most importantly, it's delicious. Many compare it to mincemeat, but I prefer it in its simplest form, with the dried raisins brightened by the flavors of fresh lemon zest and juice. I like mine topped with a whiskey-laden hard sauce, which can give the mourner a small measure of added comfort. But no need to be in mourning to make this pie. You'll find my recipe on poppytooker.com. Funeral pie makes for some good Louisiana eats. Coming up next, we travel back in time to the 19th century and explore the elaborate mourning traditions at the historic Herman Grima House. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, 
Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways, Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. Meticulously restored to the time it was built, the Herman Grima House in New Orleans' French Quarter is in many ways a living museum. Located a block off Bourbon Street, this 1930s townhouse has preserved its antebellum interior with docents changing decorations with each season, just as it was done in the Creole homes of the day. During the month of October, through All Saints Day, Death is a very visible visitor at the Herman Grima House as they highlight the mourning customs of the 1800s. When Louisiana Eats toured the property in the fall of 2013, the executive director at the time, Mamie Gasparez, explained that death was an ever-present reality for the home's 19th century residents. Yellow fever, women dying in childbirth, the Civil War, of course, took so many family members. 2% of the population died, so no family was without uh, death during that time. So there were a number of challenges. Generally, doctors, when they came around, just told your family you were dead. Oh, that's <laughs> terrible. <laughs> Maybe give us a little bit of history about this historic property, the Herman Grima House. This lovely home was actually a family home that was constructed in 1831. Sam Herman and his wife raised their family here. They were here from 1831 into the 1840s. And this is a glimpse into the lives of the 19th century families that lived here in the French Quarter. It really was a massive working property where many people lived and made their homes for many generations. Well, it's one of my very favorite times to visit the house. And of course, we just came in through that beautiful, imposing front door. And you can't help but notice as you pass by in the street that death has been a visitor because there's a special wreath on the door. Explain the door decorations. There's a special wreath on the door because we are actually interpreting this month the funerary customs and practices of the early part of the 19th century by putting the home together just as if there was a body in the front parlor and we were burying that individual from the home. Standing here in the front parlor, you can't help but be naturally drawn to the coffin. So 
This is very typical of a coffin you'd find at that time? Absolutely. Uh, a, a coffin of that time is the Victorian era pinch toe coffin. Uh, so you can see that the bottom actually narrows, so it would actually pinch the toes of the deceased. Um, and of course, we've adorned this with uh, some black crepe, some draping over the top, and then a modest bouquet of flowers. The uh, mourning process, wearing black, non-reflective black, was really an absence of vanity that was try, we try to create, um, and that was part of the mourning ritual, and a, primarily a Catholic ritual. This was still a, a very Catholic and a very French town. So here we would have draped the portrait of the person who died oh. and all the mirrors. So you wouldn't be paying attention to how lovely you looked or all of the other more social aspects of your life. Right after the month of October, you've got All Saints Day. What would happen in the cemeteries around All Saints Day? Just like New Orleanians can't gather without food, they turn everything into a party. Some of the descriptions of All Saints Day on November 1st were akin to a public fair. Police had to make sure that order was in place. There were crowds. Sometimes the more affluent families, you might even buy a new frock. <laughs> Back in the 1800s, it was very common for there to be street vendors that were perhaps adding to the food selection of what you brought along in your picnic basket. Absolutely. Street vendors have been part of New Orleans culture, food, and social for centuries, actually. Um, frozen treats were always notable. My own comment is, it's hot. How did you get frozen? Uh, especially with a limited amount of ice during the 19th century. The kala, those wonderful rice beignet-like cakes that we make here in the hearth kitchen. Those, of course, were probably one of the more popular treats. Mamie, with all this research you've done into this time period, what are the things that you've discovered that you think will be applicable to people of the 21st century? Remaining relevant is such the lifeblood of a museum. It isn't just freezing the past and time, but it's being able to compare and contrast your own family life, your own occupation, your own traditions, your own uh, dining and culinary traditions with the way things were. And again, the more things change, the more they stay the same. You'll see some things in these wonderful traditions that resonate with your own traditions or make you understand how your family became the way it is now, how you may have uh, amassed your friends that really become part of your extended family. So I think it's an opportunity to reflect and to really understand that each and every family tradition is precious. From 2013, that was Mamie Gasparez, then the executive director of the Herman Grima House, a place where mourning is an annual October event. For more information, visit hgghh.org. Whether it's a special holiday meal 
or an after-school grilled cheese. Our favorite childhood dishes often evoke strong memories of those we love. Following the death of his beloved mom, Judy, television personality Cayenne Douglas enlisted my help to recreate one of the meals she served him as a child. Here's Cayenne in my kitchen in 2014 as we set out to stir up some taste memories. I love your, uh, your apron. Thank you. <laughs> hey guys, I'm Cayenne Douglas. You may know me from the television show Queer Eye for the Straight Guy and the Rachel Ray Show. But today I'm here with my good friend Poppy and she's doing me a big favor. We're cooking up my mom's mac and cheese and pork chops. And it was one of my favorite meals that she made and Poppy is gonna help me recreate it. So I'm super thankful and super excited. Okay, get right there. When I... Oh, that's, now I hear that. That's the sound you wanna hear. Yeah, that's the sound that I remember. The reason I wanted to sit down with Poppy is because yeah. I lost my mom a year and a half ago and I miss her. And she taught me a little bit about how to make the mac and cheese, but I never really learned how to do the pork chops. Salted side down. Okay. Salt is going to draw a little bit of the moisture out of the meat. Okay. And that is going to help build up what chefs refer to as the fawns. The fawns. Uh -huh. From the time when she was a new wife trying to figure out how to cook for her husband to the time that she was a mother of two and, and wanted to make the holidays special, that you know the food that she cooked and the way she put a meal together was her way of expressing love. And I'm starting to smell that smell. You know, when you're a kid, you're all over the place. You're in this room, in that room, you're watching TV, you're playing games, you're outside, you're running all around. But when mom would start cooking, yeah. she never really had to call us to dinner because those smells would sort of waft out through the house or outside and all of a sudden, like that smell right there, that port, that is such a good smell. But what I remember most was that period of time when I was a little boy and she was still sort of doing the Southern comfort food thing. It's not like it's the best thing she ever cooked or was you know at the top of her game when she was making mac and cheese and, and pork chops. She went on to, to do much more interesting and creative cooking, but for me, those were just the meals that I had when I was in school and I was growing up. So the mac and cheese and pork chop is just sort of a standard Judy comfort food, you know, Wednesday night meal in the middle of the week. And I, and I, and I loved it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, if you added water to your mom's pork chops at this point, you would end up with some gray, odd-looking meat. Well, you know where I'm getting the water bit is because my dad and bless his heart, he said, well, she didn't put oil in there or anything. I, I think she just put water. And it just so brings back I memories. I can remember of just sitting in my mom and dad's dining room, this big wooden table. It was, a, it was a pine wooden table that they had their entire marriage. And just sitting there at that table and being with my family and the security and the love of, of, of family. It's amazing that all of those memories can just pop back into your mind, you know, yeah. just because of a crunch and a taste. Yeah, okay, I remember that now. And what we're going to be doing is a technique that is called deglazing. Okay. And what you're going to be deglazing are those little brown built-up pieces on the pan, which is where all of that delicious pork chop flavor is. You know, my mother was here right now. I'm sure she would be saying, duh. She was funny. She was quick. 
but she was kind. She was uh, always concerned that whoever was around was, was comfortable, that they had what they needed, that they were taken care of. And she was a saucy little character, too. I mean, she liked to have a cocktail. Sometimes she swore a little bit, but she was just... She's just a good woman, a good, fun woman. Honestly, Poppy, it's such a real gift. So you put a little pressure with a spatula to get them on there, to get them yeah, seared. Yeah, I want to make sure that they're on that hot skillet and yeah. they're really getting as much of a brown surface as possible. And then, of course, we're going to need a clean plate to remove them to. So go in the cabinet and grab me a clean plate. Have the one. Okay, well, here comes the big test. Pour a little gravy on that. Pork chop's looking a little dry because we poured off the gravy. So can I just give it a go? Give it a go. Oh, my word. <laughs> Does it taste like home? It tastes exactly like my mother's pork chop. Thank you. Thank you so much, Poppy. Mmm! <laughs> I'm so tickled by wow, that. Wow, so good. In the kitchen with television personality and grooming guru, Kyan Douglas. What are the telltale signs of trauma that grieving sufferers so often succumb to? Stay tuned, and we'll tell you all about it when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, just 40 minutes from New Orleans, Louisiana North Shore's Tammany Taste features the bounty of the bayou and rich culinary culture from award-winning chefs, mom-and-pop restaurants, specialty bakers, and creative mixologists. To discover more, request the Explore the North Shore Inspiration Guide for local stories, custom itineraries, and event information at louisiananorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, where New Orleans has come to play and get away for more than a century. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What are the telltale signs of trauma that grieving sufferers so often succumb to? Marissa Nathan Gerson's book, Forget Prayers, Bring Cake, A Single Woman's Guide to Grieving, is not just a memoir 
but also serves as a guide to the skills necessary to meet one's own needs in times of deep pain. One of the topics tackled is understanding trauma, where Marissa describes the various reactions we can experience when reacting to traumatic situations, like freeze, often followed by fight or flight. Both of these things are animalistic behaviors that remain deep in the human psyche. Marissa writes that, like a deer in the headlights, freeze is an acute stop-look-and-listen mechanism that serves us well by giving pause, allowing a body to assess a threat, or, in overload, could actually cause you to faint. Also built in is fight-or-flight, when your sympathetic nervous system toggles like a light switch, triggering a flood of physiological reactions that equip you for battle or retreat. While this may have served cavemen well, in today's world, it's more likely to cause issues when the reaction doesn't subside, causing an adrenaline overload, which furthers the stress on your nervous system. Grief and mourning are inevitable in life, but with the help of Marissa's book, and maybe a big slice of cake, the process can bring solace and a deeper understanding of your own human condition. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. If you've ever eaten a meal with a stuffy nose, you may discover that your food is bland and less appetizing. Doctors call this anosmia, the loss of smell, and it's a condition suffered by millions of Americans. Often caused by a nasal condition or brain injury, the effects of anosmia can be devastating, especially for someone with culinary aspirations. In the summer of 2005, Molly Birnbaum was a 22-year-old Brown University graduate about to enroll in the Culinary Institute of America to train as a chef. All that changed when she suffered a dreadful accident that resulted not only in broken bones, but the loss of her sense of smell. Molly writes about her experience in her memoir, Season to Taste, and join me in the Louisiana Eats studio to talk about it. She began by describing what happened that day that forever changed her life. Well, I was working in Boston at the time, and I went for a jog one morning, as I often did. I was living at my mother's house at the time in Brookline, and I went for a run. I was jogging up the street and came to an intersection, a four-lane highway, and it had a light, and I you know, thought it was the time to go, so I just went straight across, um, and I was hit by a car. Mm. So when did you discover that you'd lost your sense of smell? It took weeks before I discovered that I couldn't smell, and that was in part because I was injured in so many other places. I, you know, I tore the ligaments in my knee, I broke my pelvis, I fractured my skull. I was, I was not with it for a while. Mm. But a couple of weeks later, I was recovering in my parents' house, and my stepmother, Cindy, 
decided to bake an apple crisp. I was having a hard time eating. You know, I, I wasn't feeling well at all. And she thought this would help. It was one of my favorite desserts, you know, the apples and the cinnamon. It was fall time, it was, you know, reminiscent of my childhood. Uh, but when she took the crisp out of the oven, I was in a room with family and a friend or two, and everyone was ooing and aahing over the scent of this dessert. And I breathed in, and I, I couldn't smell anything. And I thought, you know, this is strange. Uh, maybe someone's in my way. You know, maybe something was blocking the scent from reaching me. Um, but when she took it out and brought it to the room and held it under my nose, and I, I breathed in, I could feel the heat, the thick heat of the steam in my nose, but there was nothing else. And that's when I realized that something was truly wrong. And what happened as a result of the accident was your olfactory nerves had actually detached, correct? Well, what happened, I later learned, is that when I, I fractured my skull, and it was the back of my skull against the windshield of this car, so there was a, a big impact, a thump, and my brain bounced within my skull. And when it bounced at the front, it severed the olfactory neurons, which snake from the nose to the brain kind of sheared them off with it, the impact, kind of like a lawnmower over grass. And so in one split second, they were just completely detached and no longer able to transmit these signals. Explain to us the complexity of how the sense of smell works in humans. Well, it is complex, and it is one of the least studied senses, so there are still many questions left. Um, but basically, when we inhale over an apple crisp, there are hundreds of scent molecules that enter in our noses, travel up to the top, and are received by the olfactory receptors, which then transmit signals from our nose to our brain. And these signals are, are, are patterns. You know, all of the different molecules send very different signals over many, many different neurons. And so it's almost like reading sheet music. The brain interprets these signals to be cinnamon or apples or sugar. And it's not entirely clear how we interpret these signals, but nonetheless, we do get that scent. Tell me how the loss of the sense of smell affected your life. It affected it greatly. When I lost my sense of smell. I had been training to be a chef. I was in love with food. I was passionate about cooking. I wanted nothing more than to you know, spend my life in the kitchen and feed people. Um, but without a sense of smell, I lost flavor, basically. I, I had known that smell and taste were connected, but I didn't realize by how much, how powerful smell was when it came to eating and tasting. So without a sense of smell, I had the salty, sweet, bitter, sour, and umami of my taste buds on my tongue. You know, I could taste salt. I could taste sugar. Um, I had temperature and texture, but very little else. I didn't have spice or herb, all of the nuance that makes food recognizable or good. So without a sense of smell, food became mute and bland. Everything tasted the same. It was, uh, it was very difficult. It was depressing, wasn't it? It was incredibly depressing. You know, walking into a kitchen where someone is cooking, where it would once be butter and garlic, uh, was just flat and plain. I couldn't tell when I was hungry. I couldn't tell when food was in the kitchen. When I ate it, you know, it was just, it was like my world had gone from color to black and white. Um, but to help my sense of smell come back, I 
had begun talking to scientists and perfumers, you know, trying to get answers. What was going on in my nose? Why did this mean so much? Why weren't there answers of how I could recover? And many of them told me that though it, it was not foolproof, smelling things would help me to retrain my sense of smell, to help get it back. And that could be just taking spices out of my cupboard and smelling them one after another. That's one of the most fascinating things about the sense of smell is that our olfactory neurons have the ability to regenerate and regrow. And even in a healthy nose, your olfactory neurons are constantly regenerating. You have new olfactory neurons. I've heard that in rats, it's 30 days. I'm not sure what it is in humans, but it's it's relatively frequent. So Molly, what did you do to go about regaining your sense of smell? I was lucky. My sense of smell began to return on its own very slowly over the course of years. And the first scent returned, and it was, it was one scent at a time. Uh, and I was chopping fresh rosemary. I was helping my mother to cook dinner. And I was chopping it for a marinade. And there was nothing, there was nothing I was chopping. And then all of a sudden, the smell just hit me. And it was, you know, glorious. It, dark green and earthy and herby and reminded me of a moment in my childhood, of course, when I rode a horse for the first time out west. Um, But after I got over the the glee of just being able to smell anything again, I began to realize that I, I couldn't recognize smells that I think before the accident would have been so familiar. The words to label them would have come, you know, right to my mouth. But that was that was gone. And so I tried to train my nose so that I could recognize smells again in the way that I did before, kind of relearning how to smell, relearning all of the scents that were present in my daily life. It was all good scents in the beginning, rosemary and chocolate, cucumbers, which I hadn't even realized had a scent before it came back. I even went so far as to go to perfume school and smell raw perfume materials over and over, and that really did help. Do you still suffer any residual effects? Well, I think that I can smell today better than I could before. And I'm not sure that's because I can smell more or more intensely, but simply that I pay so much attention to scent now and smelling things and labeling things and just being aware. So I think that the only residual effects right now are are good ones. A season to taste is a very personal and intimate look at your life. Why did you write the book? I wrote this book because when I lost my sense of smell, I felt so lost, frankly, and I didn't have answers. No one could tell me why this happened, what would happen to me in the future, and how I could make sense of my place within this disability. And through the course of these questions, I began to meet hundreds of people who had likewise lost their sense of smell and felt its effects as much as I did. So I knew that I wasn't alone, and I knew that other people also didn't have answers. So as I went through this process talking to scientists and perfumers and chefs and flavorists, you know, I I realized that there was a story to tell here that was much larger than my own in America, 1% to 2% of the population cannot smell, which translates to millions of people. And you can lose your sense of smell through a head injury like mine or simply a cold. A virus can wipe it out. And as we age, we all lose a little bit of our ability to smell. So I think it's much more common than most people realize. 
Well, I'm thrilled that you were able to come and talk with us today, and I want to thank you so much. And please come back to New Orleans and have another sniff and taste of us soon. Oh, I will. Thank you. (laughs) Molly Birnbaum, author of A Season to Taste. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods in wooden cellars, D'Agostino pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producer Blake Longlinay, and producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris. And to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladu. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.